We're going to hear from, um, from uh, our friend Fiona in just a moment. But just, um, just before we do, we've been um, doing a series um, uh, looking at the church in Antioch. And um, we've been providing a bit of a, a, a looking at the church of Antioch and seeing within that church there's a blueprint of what a healthy, uh, dynamic uh, church looks like. And we've said so far that uh, the church in Antioch was, was welcoming and inclusive. They embraced, uh, for the very first time, Gentiles were welcomed. Uh, that is, non-Jewish people were welcomed as the people of God. And we, we were working through, well, what does that mean for us today? Um, we looked at the church being a family. And um, then last week, we looked at um, the alternative message um, that the Church of Antioch pr- presented to its, um, its society. So it was, they were providing an alternative gospel to uh, Pax Romana, which was the gospel of Rome. Um, they, uh, the Church in Antioch pro- provided an alternative uh, Lord to Caesar, and that was Jesus. And then they pr- provided an alternative idea of what um, society and community could look like, and that was the church. Um, perhaps the church in Antioch is, is best known as the missionary base from which Paul, uh, the apostle, launched his missionary journeys. Um, and uh, there's a scripture here in Acts 13, verses 2 to 4, which gives us a bit of a, uh, a snapshot of, this ver- of, of uh, Paul and Barnabas being sent out onto their, onto their first missionary journey. It says, One day as they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Wouldn't it be exciting... If one day we were in church and the Holy Spirit said something to us, rather than me. I'll do. (laughs) Thanks for the encouragement. Mike's talking about encouragement uh, next week, so that's encouraging. The Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the church in Antioch was actually a, a church that was on a mission. And it, it partnered with God in sharing God's love to those who were beyond themselves. Um, the, the Christians in Antioch um, grasped the fact that um, belonging to the church wasn't just what, what's in it for me. Church is not just about us, but it's also, uh, church exists for its, its non-members. And there are three characteristics that, um, of a church on a mission that we actually see uh, in, in, uh, in the Church of Antioch. First, they were a sending, um, uh, uh, going church. Secondly, they were a giving church. And thirdly, they were a storytelling church. I think that kind of encapsulates what it means to be, to be missional. Um, the word apostle means sent one. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was an apostle. He was sent from heaven to earth. And so Jesus becomes our model of what it is to be a missionary. He left the comfort and the perfection of heaven in order to come to this earth. And um, a healthy church has a mission mindset. Um, Everyone sees themselves as a missionary. Everyone sees that they're a partner with God in order to make a positive difference in the world. Secondly, um, a, a missional church or an apostolic church is a giving church. And in Acts 11, uh, we see the church in Antioch supporting another church that was in distress. They were providing financial support um, outside of themselves. So the money they gathered wasn't just about meeting their needs, but how could they serve and bless others outside of themselves? 
And then the third thing about a, a missional church is it was a storytelling church. So when Paul and Barnabas and others came back from their mission, missionary journeys, they would come back and they would report back to the church in Antioch. They would tell the stories of what God had been doing. And that, I think, um, is the barometer of the life and dynamic of a church. How many current stories do we have about what God is doing through us to make a difference in the world as we go out as missionaries, partnering with God to make a difference in this world? This morning, uh, we're blessed to have Chris and Fee with us. Um, They're good friends. Uh, When we first moved to Melbourne... Um, they, along with uh, Grant and Trudy, another couple, uh, I guess, were our, our friendship network when we first moved here. If it hadn't been for them, we probably would have packed our bags and moved back up to New South Wales where it was much warmer. Um, so we're very grateful for their friendship. But um, Chris and Fee have got an amazing story of, of, um, of going beyond themselves and going to serve and to be a blessing and to make a difference in the world Um, They are part of an organisation called Operation Hope, which a number of people in our church already um, support, actually. Uh, Lou and myself and um, uh, Nikki and Andrew and the Jenkins as well um, are real uh, backers and supporters of their work. So can we give Fee a big Bayview welcome as she comes and shares this morning? Good morning, everyone. Oh, I can't even see, really. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. It's been a really warm welcome from the people that we've already met so far. Um, I am so excited because I prepared, you know, you prepare something and you think, God, is this really what I'm meant to share? And I was saying to Trudy just now, over the course of the weekend, we're staying at Nikki and Andrews this weekend, and it's been evolving. And just even now what Steve said, I just sat there and I'm laughing at God going, you are hilarious. Like, he actually gave me the word story over this weekend. And so to see the actual word storytelling up there was like, okay. So um, I'm going to tell stories. So the first story I'm going to tell is our story um, because Steve wanted me to share about Chris and my story. And so um, I'll start with that first. Um, I was born in Sri Lanka. Um, many years ago, not so many, but a few. And um, during that time of being born in Sri Lanka, my grandfather used to do a lot of welfare work with um, older people, the aged and orphans, and created a real sense of, um, I guess, giving and a charity, having a charity heart. And um, during that time, we then migrated um, into this, I think it was the late or mid-70s, and I was a child when we came. And as a family, an extended family, we kept doing the work in Sri Lanka through the Salvation Army in Sri Lanka. And um, that was pretty much all it was. But we still all as a family had a heart to continue doing something in our birth country. Um, but then the Asian tsunami hit in 2004, and that was such a catalyst, not just for those countries that affected, but for us as a family, because lots of families that we were friends with and um, friendships, all people wanted to start giving. Obviously, Australians Australians are such big givers and have generous hearts, and they wanted to give. And we felt like 
it was a bit dodgy because we're a family and people were giving us money and things and we just felt we needed to be really accountable and not just take people's money willy-nilly. So we incorporated our little family-run organisation into Operation Hope in 2005 and continued doing our work in Sri Lanka. During that period of time over the last few years, probably about nine or ten years ago, my cousin went to Swaziland um, as a medical intern. And while he was there, he sent a message to myself and to Chris to say, could you please help out? The need is huge. Um, would you be able to provide for some water tanks? And so Chris and I were like, sure, no problem. And we did that as a family. And a couple of years later, um, we, were sponsor we sponsored some children in Kenya and we said, let's go visit our girls. And while we're there in Africa, let's go check out Swaziland and where our money went. And so we partnered with what's called the home-based care team. They're connected to the local hospital in Stegi, which is a very rural area of Swaziland. And um, basically, we just went there at Christmas. It was actually beautiful. We felt like we'd arrived home in Swaziland. And we started to just do Christmas parties. Um, usually, the people that are really sick and can't come in because of HIV, AIDS and TB... They can't come, or poverty, can't come into the hospital to get help. The home-based care team, a group of nurses and doctors, go out to different homesteads. So we partnered with them, and all we did was Christmas parties. Um, they were so excited to see the van come and not have to, you know, bear needles and medication and stuff. It was just parties. Um, so that was our introduction, and we loved it. Um, and so we just decided as a organisation and as a board that Swaziland also needed to be a part of who we are and who we, what we do um, because of the huge need there. So over the last seven years, Chris and I decided um, we really needed to do more than just throw money. Um, so while we were there in Swaziland, the following year we went back and we incorporated an organisation there called Operation Hope Swaziland. So currently we have a local team of Swazis that work there and we do, I'll talk a little bit more about what we do later, but suffice to say that Chris and I have been going there now for the last seven years. We live there from, from about February, January, February to June each year, um, where it's a lot warmer than here, let me tell you. Um, this year we have really been struggling with the cold. Um, so we've, and then we come back here and while Chris works the whole time, he's a graphic designer and photographer, so he just needs an internet connection. So Chris has been working while we're overseas, but I'm a teacher, so I come back and teach at Chisholm, actually here in Frankston, as well as Berwick and Dandenong from July to December. So that's kind of our very, it's a, a very quick nutshell story. But as I share to some of my students, you know, lots of people look at our life and go, oh, you're just living the life. It's so amazing and fantastic and you get to travel and when I come home people often say to me how was your holiday and I really want to punch them because it's like I'm so not having a holiday we work really hard overseas and I guess when I look at what people see they see some some romanticized version of what it is to to serve overseas and um, people don't really know what goes on so I'm going to share some of the um the, the downside, I guess, to start with. Um, it's not easy, to be honest. We, um, we commit to serve for six months, which means we don't really earn much of an income. We rent our home out, so every six months we have different people in our home and 
and hope they look after it, which generally most people have, thank God. Um, one of the biggest challenges, have, and Steve and Chris today, when we caught up with them on, on Friday, was what happened this time? Because every time we come back, we have a story to tell about some disaster that occurred. So some of them have been tick bite fever. We've had broken legs, dog bites, pepper tick rashes, epileptic fits, cut open elbows, ringworm, like so many things. And it's easy to to just go, oh, you know, like when I'm telling you, it doesn't sound very traumatic, but when you're living in a developing country that don't have medication um, or, you know, the, the medical care is not as adequate as we would or what we would expect. It's challenging and it really stretches our faith. Um, and often people are like, how can you keep going knowing that, you know, some disaster I'm sure is going to befall us and it just becomes natural to just almost expect it um, and just go with the, go with, roll with the punches. Life is pretty uncertain sometimes. Um, sometimes the things we see and experience are really, really difficult. It's very hard to come home and see our wealth and our excess and then go back there and know that that's not the case. To experience the unequal life in the world, to to see, like, at the moment, my heart bleeds for this little girl, Amashle, who, who has a disability that's not diagnosed, and most of the time she's naked from her waist down because she just shuffles on her bottom and she's got no one to care for her. Grandma goes to work through the day and she's left on her own and very, very vulnerable and just lives in the mud on the ground. And it's about to become rainy season in October and so we're desperately trying to find a solution in a country that has no social welfare. So it's really, really tricky and my heart hurts every time I think of her that I'm back here now and, you know, it's it's a lot easier when you're there to try and make some things happen. Um, it's a little bit harder when you're home here. And then the other thing that's a real challenge too is creating some sort of, sort of normalcy for us as a married couple. So cr maintaining our friendships and our family here when we're not here for six months and even as a church family fitting in. It's taken me three years to finally feel like I fit into our church here because we're gone for six months and every time I come back, it's like building up again. Friendships that, you know, were only just started to be created. So that's our reality, our guess, from a negative perspective um, or it's, it's a real perspective, but it is the, the blur kind of side. But that's not all it is. And if I were to tell you that, no one would ever go on a mission trip um, or be interested at all. It actually, for me and for Chris, has been a calling. And that's what makes it so much easier to go through and do what we do. Because we know that it's the right thing in our hearts to do. We feel like we're being obedient to that call that God has placed upon our heart. It's been about partnership with Christ. We know we don't do this together. We have a prayer team that prays for us while we're overseas. We send prayer updates and we're all working. It's together we do this. Chris and I certainly do not travel this journey alone and I never feel alone. We always know that there are support people around us praying and speaking to us and emailing us and letting us know that we're in it together. 
It's knowing that when we're over there and here, every single person matters. It's having to choose to see the one and not see the enormity of the problems that we see. Sometimes I can look at the poverty and the need and all the stuff that goes on with political nonsense and corruption and disease and feel like, what am I doing here? We are not making any difference. The statistics are not lowering. Um, but in reality, it's the one person. If everyone can change one person's heart, if we can connect heart to heart with one person, that's what matters. It's knowing that together we can make a difference. So I've just jotted down some scriptures that have really spoken to my heart. I'm a doer um, as much as anything else. So things like in Isaiah where, where he says, learn to do right, seek justice. It's a doing word. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It goes on to say later on in Isaiah, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. It is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Sorry. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or with speech, but with actions and in truth. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And I know there are so many other scriptures and I'm just pulling out the ones that have spoken to me. So I'm, not, I'm hoping you're not thinking I'm taking things out of context, but these are the things that make my heart beat and give me energy to keep going. And there was a, um, what's her name? Brooke Fraser had once sung a song and it said, Now that I have seen, I am responsible. Faith without deeds is dead. And that, that has been my mantra. I cannot see and walk away. And even though there's so much I see, and I can't do everything, but I can do something. So my story is more than that, though. My story is interwoven with many other stories. It's about giving and taking. It's about enrichment, interaction, and growth. So I'd like to share with you some stories about some of the families that we have been honoured to serve. And I do say that serving because they have graciously allowed us to interact with them. They have graciously 
opened their arms and embraced us and allowed us to be a part of their community. And now it feels like home. It is home. Often I'm confused when I say home because I have two. Um, so I just want to share a few stories. And I could tell you, I could stand here for weeks and tell you so many. But just to start off with, I'd share just a few. So these girls, this is our project manager, Nomsa, who is an absolute gun. And these girls, Marshall is her nephew who lives with her. But Nomsa's an amazing lady who opened her home. These four girls we came across in our work who were orphans and had no one to care for them except their granny who just couldn't care for them. She had no means of income. The children were not going to school or they were struggling in school. They had no uniforms. Their story is long. But suffice to say, Nomsa took them in amongst everything else. She has adult children and grandkids as well, but she took them in because Swazis have big hearts. And um, we, as Operation Hope, have been caring for them. So Nomsa, Chris and I are on the paperwork as their foster parents. And since then, we've been able to reunite Petsile and Temalangeni back with family. Um, but the other two, Temaswadi and Nonshle, remain with Marshley in the house. And so you can flick through the next few photos, Josh. So their story that really warms my heart is that, and sometimes I can't believe we get to to work with these children who are just beautiful, but they have, we've been able to impact them in education with their food, with clothing. Um, we just got their last school results just this week and I love how my project manager's email to me was, so in, Siswa, in Swazi, they go, li, 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 like for being excited. And she'd written, li, 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 onwards and upwards. The girls have done it because they've been really struggling with school because they've missed out. You can stop there. That's the most recent photo of them from this year. They have grown. They're thriving. They're doing so well. And Operation Hopes works with quite a lot of orphans. Um, in the same way, but not in our own homes, um, in their own homes. The next story I'd like to tell you about, thanks Josh, is Gogo Sarah. Unfortunately, Gogo Sarah is no longer with us. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she's our treasure. She allowed us to intersect in her life and gave us way more than we gave her. We, she, I have a granny that lived till 100 and she was like, my foster granny, when we were there. She would sing and just give us joy. And she used to say hilarious things, um, like she had no blood. <laughs> and, and she remembered really crazy dates, like the day she lost her teeth. Um, she would tell us really funny stories. Um, you can go to the next slide. But she allowed us to celebrate life with her. That was her 99th birthday, um, not long before she passed away. But just to be able to love and care for these people who open their hearts to us and allow us to intervene and just bring dignity and love and respect back to their life. She, was, she lived in a, like you can see her hut, but on the floor was just a dirty, dirty mattress. So we were able to give her a new mattress and clothing and all she wanted was tea, sugar and bread. Um, that was her joy. And so every time we visited, we'd make sure we'd take stuff um, for her birthday. You can keep going, Josh, thanks. So these are just some pictures from her, um, from her birthday party. Then this is Kansile. 
Another thing we do is we partner with lots of families to try and bring them to a point of health, whatever that looks like for them. So, you know, if I were to work like your coach program that you're about to do in community, which is so exciting, it's coming alongside someone and working out for them, with them, alongside them, what is, what is it going to take to move them forward in life? And for each person, it's really different. So Operation Hope works with that kind of sustainable idea that we sit alongside and we partner with families to work out what it is for them. And so it might be a small business, it might be a garden, it might be a market garden, because we're all really different and not everyone has business skills, but this lady does. Her name is Kansila and she started with making um, floor polish with wax and came to us with a business plan. So we thought, let's just invest in her and see how we go. She has been an absolute gun. You can keep going. She built this little um, shop by herself and she sells a whole range of bits and pieces. And then what she's done now is she's moved this shop. At the moment, she's selling boiled corn next to the hospital. And that's doing a great business. And now she's come... Oh, you can stop. Now she's come to, um, the, to us with a new business plan. And we're about to invest in her to actually build her a proper tin shed shop at the hospital where she's going to sell a whole bunch of stuff. She completely pays for her family for everything through her business. And that's just like one of the hugest success stories to see her progressively getting better and better in her life ec economically. This is another lady, Lillian, who also erected this shop. And she also, we're about to invest in her in broadening her shop and her business as well. You can go, yeah. So, ah, it's too cute. So this, if you just pause there for a sec. So this is the reality in Swaziland is many, many families do not have access to clean water. You know, I talk to my students a lot and I'm horrified when I come home that I have access to, I think it's like nine different clean water points in my one house. Um, and most, even our project manager still does not have water. They still have the girls, still have to go collect water. Um, so a lot of the time it's from unprotected springs like this where animals also come and feed. And so a lot of the time it's dirty and polluted and that's where disease comes in. You can go to the next slide. And homes look like this. Um, they're either mud and stick or they're tin made from lots of scraps. Really unsafe for children, for anyone, but for the children. And also, um, obviously, insects, snakes, rain, weather... Um, they, they fall down. So this was a, a lady called Gogola Basika's house when we first met her and that's what she used to put all her possessions on the one bed with no mattress and that's how she used to live. So what we do currently, you can stop there for a minute, is we invest in houses as well as a part of our journey with families. Getting them to a place of health, you cannot think about business or growing things if you don't have shelter and you're not feeling safe. So we try to bring families along a journey to make them feel protected and safe and then we work alongside them with what's next. So this is um, Kulamani's family. They're three boys and they're orphans. Um, Makawe is the youngest. You can flick. So his mother passed away through HIV AIDS. You can stop there. Um, their mother passed away. Their father is no... 
I don't know, he's just not around in the picture at all. And um, she started to build a house in that previous slide and then passed away. So Operation Hope was, was able to come alongside that family and build them a new home. You can keep going. So this is Kulamani. We were really excited because one of our um, workers is an agricultural expert and he, was, he helps the families with how to do composting and he calls it God's blanket for mulching and all kinds of things. And Kulamani, we were very excited to see this year that Kulamani is actually making a really big effort in doing a garden for him and his brothers. Thank you. Um, that's the, that, oh no, this is non theater. So this is, I think, the last story. Second last. So these three are also orphans. Um, although actually, no, they do have a dad who has abandoned them and their mum has passed away. Um, so you can go to the next picture. So this is what happened. They were all at school a couple of years ago and some freak thing happened with their gas bottle and burnt their house down. You can go to the next picture. And they were obviously very distraught. So we were able to partner with Red Cross and get them a short-term tent and then work, try to work out a solution for them. And if you go to the next picture, so that's their new home there in the back with the cream and the burgundy. And they're working also on doing a garden for themselves. You can go to the next one. And our last story is this is Takona. Takona, we met the first year. She was living with Nomsa, our project manager, and then she became a little bit naughty, as some teenagers do, and ran away. Um, but we were investing in her in schooling and stuff, and we were really heartbroken that she had chosen um, a pathway that wasn't going to be good for her. But over the last couple of years, we were able to reconnect with her and really just encourage and love on her. And through that now, very excited to see that she's actually just working a few hours every now and again doing some of our programs with us. So we're Nomsa's men, currently mentoring her, kind of like your coach program, walking alongside her and seeing what life could look like for her. Thank you. Um, so the reason why I share those stories is because it's an intersection of love. We don't just get stuff from them in, in regards to um, that feeling of goodness. You know, if you do something for someone, let's be really honest, we do feel good, don't we? There's something that happens inside us. But what I've realised is it's an intersection of our hearts, of our hands, of our feet. I've called it risky love because every time we engage with a family, it might be a disaster and fail. But it's not about that at all because Christ sees them. And so for me, it's about engaging with those families, with those individuals, and seeing what God wants to do, saying, Jesus, here we are. We're in this country, and this is a family that's come before us. What do you want to do? And taking the risk, taking that, that, the risk of heartbreak, or the risk of joy, because it can be both or either, what I've gained from our experience so far, and it's a continual journey because I'm always learning, is that it has impacted my worldview like nothing else. I have grown so much to see people in so many different ways. My perspective has changed. My idea of community has changed. I actually was saying to Trudy and Grant this weekend, I crave 
community like they have in Swaziland. They, they, everyone's really friendly and embracing and take you in. And I think in our world this, these days, we have to work really hard to maintain community and to develop community, even as churches. I've learned to see Jesus in the other, no matter what they look like. They might be filthy and dirty and almost leperish, but being able to just embrace them and see Jesus in them, that has been transformative for us. Operation Hope does relief and development. We do homes, water, sanitation, gardens. We do development, business skill training, education, health training. We build classrooms and partners with schools and communities. It's all about empowerment and ownership. We don't do it to them, we do it with alongside. Every Person Matters is our logo on our website because it's important that we, we understand that we can change one life at a time. If you're interested in knowing more about our work, Steve's got a whole bunch of pamphlets there and you can go to our website or our Facebook page. It's Operation Hope Inc, I-N-C, um, to find out more about us and be put onto a, a list to get a newsletter. So that's my story and Operation Hope's story. But I just want to conclude with your story. What is your story? What is your story as Bayview Church? You know, sometimes it's really easy to look at so many things and feel so overwhelmed that we do nothing because we don't know where is our money going? Is it worth investing? Is it worth having that risky kind of love? It's hard to take sometimes that first step or who do we connect with? But it's so worth it. And I want to challenge you as a church because, you know, this, is, this might be my only opportunity. I don't know. And so while I'm here, I want to say to you, take that, take that first step, church. Take that first step, individual. Take risky love. It's really worth it. Don't feel overwhelmed. Find that one thing that you can do and do that well or the two things, whatever it might be for you and your capacity. Um, before words that were asked was, what is your life? What is your purpose as a church that you're exploring? Steve talked about the Antioch Church being a storytelling church, a giving church. I pray that that will become your, a part of your DNA, that you will become a church like Antioch that embraces the other, that you take risks of love, and that you really want to partner and join hand-to-hand -hand with other people and other churches and other communities to truly make a difference here in your neighbourhood with our Indigenous communities, with our Australian communities, and then with the communities across the world. We truly can make a difference. You know, I am one person, and I will admit, even I'm sometimes in awe of what we do as a as a team. I'm not meaning me, I'm meaning Operation Hope because we have a board and we've got many people doing different things. Sometimes I'm in awe because I don't see myself as anything amazing and I hate the limelight. So for me, I'm quite happy to be out in the bush doing stuff with, with families and no one knowing about it and that's my struggle. But we can, I've learnt that we can make an amazing difference if we just step out of our comfort zones 
and take that risky love. I hope that will be your mandate and calling as a church as well. I really appreciate you having me and for listening to us. Thank you.